0: Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. On this episode, we'll be discussing the Hunger Games through the theme of nationalism, a new theme for us. Yes. Yes. So I guess we should ask, are you a very nationalistic person?
1: (laughs) I'm probably one of the least nationalistic people I've ever met.
0: Have you met yourself? Yeah. Yeah. When did you do that?
1: Every day of my life. (laughs) When I look in the mirror and and I'm like Hey beautiful. No I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) I mean yes, but I mean I would never do that. Is it always for the first time you're meeting you or you're meeting up like meeting up with friends?
1: Anyways (laughs) I am extremely not nationalistic or patriotic or any of that. Why is that? For me, a lot of that comes from since I studied history. Learning about what the United States has done to so many people, obviously people within the U.S. and other countries around the world, is just not something I can be proud of or be rooting for or supportive of because I don't support oppression and exploitation. (laughs) And to think that your country is better, to think that your country deserves these resources or this or that at the expense of other people, I just, I can't do that.
0: Yeah, and I think you hit it right on the head there, that idea of at the expense of others, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, the U.S.'s prosperity is due in such large part because of the expense of other people, right? Particularly our continuing prosperity today. We're not necessarily prosperous nation now because of our natural resources or things like that. It's because we have economic power and we are able to maintain that, especially as a consumer class, because of the way that we utilize near slave, if not slave level workers in other countries, right? Mm -hmm. And so our, yeah, our comparative power directly comes out of the purposeful weakening are hurting of the lives of people from other countries. And,
1: well, and the only reason that we exist as a country is because white people came here and ruined it for all the indigenous people.
0: Right. We, li- we live in Los Angeles, and, and, you know, we aren't the United States of the Tongva, the local people here, right? We're the like mm-hmm. United States of America, based off an Italian person. Like, this is a, yeah, a European colony, essentially. Yeah, yeah it's, it's funny because I, I think I've, I've never really felt super patriotic, and I think a lot of that has been because even like intrinsically, I, I always thought that a part of feeling nationalism is a kind of othering. Mm. And as I've, you know, gotten to grad school and gotten to others kinds of, you know, studying history, as you mentioned, you know, looking at that as a program of nations, of developing nationalism as a way of defining who is and specifically who is not a member of the nation being so important and how often that has been done by racial, gendered, economic, other kinds of means that are essentially putting a minority into the out and uh, the majority into the in. And I think that that is something that me, like I, I value empathy. I value making community and nationalism seems like you're making community with a very specific group of people and that that... That doesn't seem really true to to what I'd what I'd want.
1: Yeah, and that you care about their welfare and everybody else is an afterthought, if it's even a thought at all.
0: Mm, yeah. Yep. So, no, it sounds like <laughs> for us then. Um, so then we'll. That's we'll be... what you
1: got from what I said. <laughs> that is yes. Aww. So
0: uh, we'll probably have an interesting conversation about nationalism in the Hunger Games. <laughs> yes. Well, to start us off, we have a quote from chapter one of The Hunger Games, the first book in the series, where Katniss has lined up with the rest of District 12 to hear about some of the history of Panem at the Reaping.
1: He tells of the history of Panem, the country that rose out of the ashes of a place that was once called North America. He lists the disasters, the droughts, the storms, the fires, the encroaching seas that swallowed up so much of the land— the brutal war for what little sustenance remained. The result was Penem, a shining capital ringed by 13 districts, which brought peace and prosperity to its citizens.
0: Yeah, that, that passage so early in the book does so much and is so useful in building what this world is and, and of course, how it seemed through national uh, nationalist views and, and, and... Lenses. Lenses, thank you. <laughs> because... It talks about you know this glorious past that has been drilled into them repeatedly, which is a nationalist thing, right? You build Absolutely. mythology based off of a type of history. And it also does that who is nationalist and who isn't, right where where it talks about how Panem is the capital that's ringed by districts and it brings wealth and, and, and peace to its subjects, right? But that inherently already is showing the capital is really what they mean when they when they talk about who is Panem and the rest are subjects. They are subjects to the rule of the capital.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, that's what I think of. It, it talks about, obviously, all of the terrible environmental effects, mm-hmm. right, that destroyed what used to be North America and hell yeah this brutal war started it started because there were only certain resources left and so everybody was fighting for them and and obviously that that is a reality and we don't always feel that but one is going to become more and more and more a reality mm-hmm. as we continue to go on but also the United States is this shining star and these other countries who some of them are already feeling more and more of the disastrous effects Mm. of climate change like actual communities that have had to be airlifted off of their islands because their islands are now underwater and so yeah just kind of like oh well Will benefit from whatever we'll take. Continue to take resources from other countries where there there are wars happening because there's famine and there's you know all of these things going on and we're taking some of their resources and they don't have any.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But I love the the type of language that they use to to construct this history that is meant to indoctrinate the people.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So so a good a good quote to start us off but did you bring a character in whom you saw nationalism?
1: I did. And, you know, I was thinking about, "Ah, should I go with the most obvious? But then I was like... I can't not go with the old white man. How do you not go with snow? Because I think an old white man is just this great symbol of nationalism. Not that other countries haven't had nationalism that are not European or, you know, Western-centric. But But it's just a great symbol, especially for the United States and also Europe in general. They've had such a drastic impact on on nationalism in in several different regards both the using things at the expense of others for the benefit of yourselves mm-hmm. but also in spurring a, another type of nationalism which would be like wars for independence for example colonialism in Algeria you know wars of independence against France yeah so I thought we could start with him
0: a good call probably
1: <laughs> so Something I was really thinking about was the conversation that he has with Katniss in mm. Catching Fire mm. in in the little study. And some of this, the ideas that he shares there, I think, are so tinged with nationalism. So he talks about, like, if there's uprisings, that could lead to revolution. And do you know how many people would die if there was a revolution? And do you know what conditions would be left for everybody else who survived in... The whole system would collapse if we loosened our grip on mm-hmm. the districts. And I think, yeah, it's just such a hidden nationalistic way of talking about things because it's, it's better this way. These districts, they wouldn't even know what to do. They wouldn't even know how to manage these resources if we didn't do it for them, right? And so it's just like this very justification way of we do this because it's the better way, because this keeps people safer, because this keeps the peace. And then there's also that kind of fear tactic of you don't even, you can't even imagine how bad it would be. Like this would create more suffering if we didn't do these things. And so it's better for us to either kind of stay, maintain what we're doing or even get bigger, right? That's usually the nationalism. It's either we need to maintain or we need to like get greater. It's not usually, we need a change. We need to shift how we're doing things and make things more equal. That's not usually how (laughs) nationalism works. So yeah, it's, it's very much a... A narrative that's created by those in power to keep their power.
0: Absolutely. It's so funny that that the exact language that you use is is literally right out of a book that I'm reading for grad school this week. So back to the recurring segment of what's Chris reading in (laughs) grad school.
1: Ooh, I could be a grad school textbook writer. You
0: totally could. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was reading Carbon Democracy by uh, Timothy Mitchell, and he was talking about how... In his focus on oil and fossil fuels, how after World War I, this idea of the mandate that basically legitimized imperialism with the advent of the League of Nations and everything was focused on, A, a belief that the uh, oil-rich countries of the world were not civilized enough um, and so it had to be kind of developed in that way. And mm-hmm. that because these resources were so important, they couldn't be trusted to shepherd those resources or, or maintain those responsibly. And so for the good of humanity, they had to be colonized. They had to be ruled over.
1: For the greater good.
0: Exactly. And that is so much what you're just talking about. And mm-hmm. uh, you can definitely see that here with the way that Snow treats the districts and the way that, that even go back to that, that quote, that these districts are subjects because they can't be trusted to guide themselves towards Towards peace and prosperity. They have to have this guiding hand of this uplifted nationalist ideal.
1: Yeah, and, and we can put that also in our show notes if, if anybody wants to read more about <laughs> very interesting but horrifying things. Yes, absolutely. It's, <laughs> uh,
0: it's definitely a really interesting read in um, a different, different way of looking at, at world history and modern world history.
1: Mm. Also in that conversation... I thought it brought out a really good other little negative Mm -hmm. of nationalism. He said... If a girl from District 12 of all places could defy the capital and walk away unharmed, what would prevent others from doing that? And I think there we go into such a kind of militaristic idea of if someone does something against our country, then we need to do something. It's not about defense. Now we need to go on the offensive to make sure that others know that we are strong and we won't deal with this, mm. right? And that we won't have it. And so, you know, it's just a great justification for war and drones and like all of these different things because we cannot let them win. Right. And, and this can't... idea of winning is so nationalistic. Yeah.
0: And we can't be seen letting them win. Absolutely. Right? It's so much about the image of it.
1: Because then other countries might be like, oh, well, they're weak then. Mm-hmm. And nationalistic language and rhetoric is never put in a stance of empathy or compassion. It's only a stance of strength.
0: Mhm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, that is what I picked up from our good old President Snow.
0: <laughs> Not my president. <laughs> <laughs> well, the plot that I brought in for this week is when the quarter quell is announced and the citizens of the capital are enraged that the victors are going back into the Hunger Games, mm-hmm. right? Because this is the first time that they care about who is being put into the Hunger Games. The Hunger Games typically yeah. are something that's, you know, entertaining and fun and amazing, the best part of the year, and, and all these wonderful things for them, right? They, they love it as, as entertainment. And they're the only people in Panem who, other than District 13, because they thought they were annihilated, who are not putting forward tributes. And so... In a, in a world where they are looking at things through the propaganda of the state, they have no nationalistic ties to the people of the districts mm-hmm. until they become victors. Because mm-hmm. then, now, they're still not necessarily one of us, but they're ours, right? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. Still, it's still very much a... They are, they are property, they are commodified and objectified, but they are ours, right? They are no longer separate. So the first time that you see capital citizens engaging in a kind of nationalism tied to the people of the Hunger Games is when, for the first time in 75 years, they, in some way, are putting forward tributes, right? Mm-hmm. These are tributes coming from their perspective. And and then you see them reacting, right? They don't rise in rebellion in any way. You know, they they, they react in the ways that they can, which is yelling about it I mean, it they, they
1: sort of riot, but yeah, nothing past that.
0: Exactly. And... And I mean, I, I can't blame them. They've never had any other need to have revolution before either. They have no yeah. way, you know, how understanding how to do that. But I think that it's an interesting perspective to see how once you lose something that is important to you, then nationalism can kick in in a way, right? And it goes back to kind of what we were talking about with this, this othering that nationalism brings with it, where the lives and livelihoods of other people are, if important at all, less important than those of your nationality, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the US, we use an example, we talk about an American soldier killed with much greater emphasis than 10, 12, 50, 100, 1000 of enemy combatants that are killed, right? Right. Or civilians that are killed, right? Um, And so... Because they're we don't ours. talk about them
1: as people, we talk about them as enemies, right?
0: Right, or or just others, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of a, a country that is war-torn and that we're trying to help, but when it happens to our people, that's when it's a tragedy. And you see that in, in the citizens.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was something that I was kind of thinking about, like these glory narratives, and the people of the capital only care about it because it's narratives that they can tell, mm. right? They can talk about the story that they saw or like the 71st Hunger Games and remember what happened. Oh, that was so tragic when this, you know, but then they can talk about their, the victor of that year in these glorified perspectives. Mm. But then it's kind of like we have this weird nationalistic glorification of the military, mm-hmm. right? And then... We care if they survive or we care if they die. But once they're back here living as, like, quote-unquote normal civilian people, it's like, ah, it doesn't really matter what happens to them. We don't need to provide them with, you know, mental health services or whatever it is. Which is exactly what the Capitol did, right? It's like, oh, we love these victors. Like, Mm -hmm. listen to this story. And then it's like... Do we need to provide any services for them for the trauma they went through? No.
0: Yeah, and, and that's why I, I, I tend to not be a fan of military ventures. Might be surprised to find <laughs> that out. But um, I, I don't think that, that going to war tends to be a good idea. But I do think that someone who goes to war should be supported. Because otherwise we are commodifying them. What Otherwise, if we are... are, are training someone and forcing them to go through hell and to do these these oftentimes horrible things and then we expect them to come back into our society without the resources that they that we should be providing them i think that is a form of commodification and commodifying our soldiers is yeah similarly terrible to the commodification of the tributes that we see in in the hunger games
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: well Why don't we go on to our compelling questions? Did you have a question for me?
1: So I'm wondering if you see a sense of nationalism for any of the particular districts. If any of the people from particular districts have nationalism towards their own district, not necessarily penem.
0: That's an interesting question. One of the things that I
1: I was hoping for,
0: I was one of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about a plot was when District Eleven. Sends Katniss the bread after Rue dies, mm-hmm. and that's something that is so truly costly for them, right? Yeah, where they had to pool so many resources together to get this through. You know, probably originally for Rue, but they sent it to Katniss, and they, I imagine that they did not intend it to be a a revolutionary symbol the way that it kind of can become
1: mm-hmm. with Katniss mm-hmm.
0: becoming the Mockingjay, but. They still decided to do it because, for them, part of nationalism is symbolism—is this idea of putting forward things that are not just in your specific best interest. You are you are coming together for a mythological whole of the nation and supporting that nation, which in turn will help everyone. Right? Is is the, the kind of nationalistic uh, myth, but. Here we see them putting forward these things to kind of help out someone who did well by the a symbol of their nation, and so I can mm-hmm. kind of see that as being a form of mm-hmm. nationalism where it's not just her family that's doing this, but Eleven as a whole is going out and doing this. And then when Katniss and Peter are there, and they and other districts start doing the the symbols of the like of the salute. salute, yeah, I think that's another way of kind of showing solidarity in a way. I, I wonder how much of a revolutionary spirit has to be nationalistic is mm-hmm. kind of a question that that I get from that question based because that's kind of how we see them come together is in revolution against the capital
1: yeah well it's interesting because it's through them not putting just their district first that this revolution is able to happen mm. so maybe it's breaking down those borders and those barriers And, yeah, being, like, people in these other districts are just important as people from my district. How can we both together create something better for us all? Mm. But, I don't know.
0: Did you have anything else in mind?
1: Yeah. So, well, I was kind of thinking that... I see some nationalism in the careers. Mm. So in District 1 and 2, right? And especially 2 that, like, starts training for the games as children, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is super disturbing. And they want that glory. They want to win and be the champion and the victor. And it's seen in such a positive light. I mean, and they actually have the the time and the resources to train for it whereas mm-hmm. other districts don't have that because they're all being worked so hard but they want to win for district two mm-hmm. And that to me seems pretty nationalistic And then also district one is part of the cruise too and I kind of wonder if there's something about visibility. Mm-hmm. in nationalism because district one creates the fabrics that the capital uses for all of their flamboyant outfits and it's this very like lavish and ornate extravagant very visual symbol mm-hmm. and then you have district too, which creates these weapons, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a very visual form of control. And the capital values those two districts so much because of the very specific ways that they uphold their superiority. Whereas other districts, even though obviously they're providing things that the capital needs to live, like, you know, food, but it doesn't have that same like visual... I think, wait, mm-hmm. as the others do. So I just, I don't know, that was something that I was kind of thinking about. If there's some sort of something visual that sets you apart from the others.
0: Hmm. Interesting. That visual aspect is yeah a really interesting one, especially when we think about the capital.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then obviously, we have nationalism in District 13, mm-hmm. because they're the survivors. Mm-hmm. And it was very much like, oh, well, we're just gonna close ourselves off from everything else until there's an opportunity to take control. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Well, that actually kind of goes well into my question because it was going to be about why you think District 2 is the last district to remain with the Capitol during the rebellion.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that it very much comes from that. They, they were linked so closely to the capital, mm-hmm. and I think they had most of the benefits from it and I think also there's something that when you have pride in something is much harder to relinquish that Mm. and admit hey we're on the wrong side Mm. because that makes your whole concept of reality crumble and yeah they were held in highest esteem right after the capital so why would they want to give that up because if this revolution does happen, everything's restructured, where are they going to be?
0: Yeah, I think that, that that's a really big part of it, you know, this, this, uh, what they get from it. Because nationalism as a myth works for those who it benefits, right? Mm-hmm. And if, as we've discussed, the, the districts are seen as subjects, not citizens, then they don't benefit from a nationalism that's capital-centric. But... District 2 does start to benefit from that when it becomes the military focus. After 13, It's no longer part of it, 2 becomes where the military comes from, both, both the peacekeepers themselves and the military equipment and things like that. And so I see this kind of chicken and egg situation where I don't know whether one created the other or if they were created together as a kind of symbiotic relationship between... Granting the people of District 2 more material comforts because they are required for peacekeeping. They are required for military might or requiring military might and so giving creature comforts to those who provide it.
1: Giving what comforts?
0: Creature comforts or, or, or military comfort to,
1: oh, okay.
0: to the those who provide that military might. I kind of see those, yeah, working symbiotically where they... Don't want to overthrow the capital because the capital put them in a position, or at least some of them, because there are some, I think, uh, stone workers there who aren't super well off, but for the elites, at least, the powerful in District 2, they're able to maintain that nationalist identification with the capital because of that material wealth that they get from that.
1: Yeah, and I think that totally happens in our geopolitics today. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we'll align with this country, even though some of the stuff they're doing is really horrendous. Because it positions us in a better place.
0: Yeah. And it always helps that those horrendous things are typically not mentioned in propaganda and in, in, in the discourses of that culture.
1: Yeah. Well, and even if some people know it's happening, it's just like, oh, well, that's happening to the people of color in other places. So, yeah, whatever.
0: Yeah, but I mean, nationalism happens, at least today, in, in countries of color as well, right? Sure, um, for sure. But it, it definitely does still come with an othering, right? It's happening to mm-hmm. them, not to us. Yeah. And oftentimes that can be on racial lines, for sure. Um, sometimes on, on ethnic lines that many people wouldn't consider racial lines, but, you know, both yeah. of them are fairly made-up constructs anyway. So, yeah. yeah. Why don't we go into our missed opportunities? What was uh, the missed opportunity that you saw in the Hunger Games with nationalism?
1: Yeah, so, for me, I think it's... It would have been nice if Susan Collins had maybe driven home more of an international aspect. Mm. Obviously it would have to be done just right because it isn't an international uh sphere, but it completely is, you know, <laughs> like mm. it's it's written that way, but I think not everybody gets that from the books when they read it. So I think it could have just been driven home a little more because I looked it up and the first book, The Hunger Games, sold 65 million copies in the United States alone. And that was like a stat from 2014. Mm. So how many of those millions continually critique international relations? You know? (laughs) So, yeah, I think... People are still celebrating the 4th of July and still think that the United States is the best country in the world and stuff like that without acknowledging how we are the capital. And so, yeah, I think maybe she could have done something to make that a little more apparent.
0: A little more explicit instead of an implicit comparison? mm mm-hmm. hmm. mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, my missed opportunity is it's in a similar vein, but it's within the the universe itself where
1: okay.
0: I felt like there was a lack of of looking outside of Pan Because we have something that's very different from what our world actually has, where they are, from what we see in the books, all that remains. And so this is a worldwide community, and so there is no other outside of Pan right? There is an othering between the districts and the capital. But outside, is that all that
1: remains in the entire world? That's
0: they don't they don't mention anything else. But yeah,
1: they definitely don't right? mention anything else. Oh,
0: so that's that's my thing is I think it would be interesting. I mean, interesting. it is
1: all from Katniss's perspective.
0: <laughs> For sure, exactly. Which which is also very interesting and, and, and a really you know unique thing about the books. But also, I'm a, a lore fiend and I want to know it all. Um,
1: <laughs> Stop being such a fiend.
0: No. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that, that there's something about not having an other that I think would have more of a a strong impact on the way that, that things might or might not work in society and how that affects nationalism I think is really interesting and important. And I would have loved to see that examined in some ways, you know, whether whether it is that the lack of you know, comparison to when there used to be countries that were fighting each other and then the fact that there's not that anymore has led to these different changes. Or just a, a side of Snow continues to use this myth of these other countries that no one's ever made contact with, but have, you know, we're the ones that destroyed North America to begin with, and so now we're still a threat that the capital protects them from, or whatever else it might be. I just think that would be an interesting thing to include that uh, I would have loved to have seen.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, I suppose we should go on to our takeaways. What do you take away from this conversation?
1: The, the future is bleak. Because I'm like, what is there to prevent us from becoming this in the future? Mm. You know, because these things, these famines and droughts and fires and submerged land is all going to happen or Mm -hmm. is already happening. And so, I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting thought of how to kind of fight against nationalism and fight against this idea of us first when there is you know so little at some point Hmm. i don't know it's just kind of interesting and and probably something that's good to think about before Mm -hmm. it starts happening more and more
0: yeah you'd like to think that right yes
1: right because apparently i was reading uh an article from like a bunch of scientists and every one degree centigrade that the temperature increases i think i'm trying to remember the stat but it was something like warfare increases by like six percent or something like that so yay wow that's that's good (laughs) but what is your takeaway maybe something uh more positive (laughs) That's that's your role. <laughs> that in is this my role. Relationship. That's true.
0: Yes. Well, I think my takeaway, if if I wanted to skew positive, it would be that nationalism is a very powerful force, but solidarity is also a very powerful force, mm-hmm. and solidarity often has to come in a fight against nationalism. That these two are fighting each other; they're in conflict. But solidarity can be powerful, and I think that. A, an intentional fight against nationalism and for solidarity with those who are not in what you're told is your in-group can lead to to huge change, um, and even unintentional, as we saw with, with the, the quarter quell that I was talking about, where once you have solidarity with others, it becomes so much more difficult to see them as other. Yeah. And that, I think, is something that the Hunger Games does does do well to include that it is once the districts start to rise that other districts start to rise. Mm-hmm. It is because of the way they, they are able to interact with each other. And that's what Katniss's power is, is that she, whether she internalizes this or not through her narration, she brings in an element of empathy and of care for others just because they're people, right? Mm-hmm. Or because they're people who are suffering similar oppression as she is
1: yeah it brings to mind in the mocking jay where she asks for immunity for mm-hmm. the other victors and she throws enobaria's name in there not because she likes her but just because she didn't feel it was right to leave her out exactly of that
0: and and she sees her i mean yeah enobaria like isn't great but she's also <laughs> a victim of victim. violence exactly yeah yeah so yeah, my takeaway will be solidarity is powerful and something that, that we should strive for.
1: As the world turns into a fireball.
0: Precisely. <laughs> well, why don't we move on to what we'll be doing for next week? Okay. We'll be back on to Avatar The Last Airbender.
1: Okay. We are going to look at fear.
0: Fear and Avatar. Yep. That will be a good one. It will. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. You can also go to our website, bit.ly slash Geek the Lines. Uh, and, and the show notes that uh, are included there are going to have links to some of the things that we talk about, be they articles or books or what have you. Um, so you can get some more information about further readings and kind of where, where we're getting some of our sources. Yeah and make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe to us. It's really, really uh, important that we, we get out there and get up in the ratings so that we can get new listeners because the more listeners that we get, the, the better, I think, that we can engage with these issues and, and a better community we'll have to engage with them. Uh,
1: that we can have solidarity with. Yeah!
0: <laughs> we also want to thank Kimberly Toledo pastella at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Instagram or Facebook. And we want to thank you again for listening to this episode. Obviously, I will never able to run for any kind of office after (laughs) putting this out on the air but uh it is it is a lot of fun to to talk about these issues and and i think they're important ones
1: definitely
0: well until next week geek Geek out. out